1: Today's episode of On the Edge with Andrew Gold is brought to you, again, by language learning app, Babbel.
0: As you know, you've read it, he stopped the other one from killing me, so I could have easily been another statistic of someone that was raped and then killed.
1: Today I've got Madeleine Black on the show. We've been in touch for a while. I'm going on her podcast, she came on mine Her story is the story of Unbroken, which is now both a book and a podcast, which you can find in all the normal places as well as in the show notes. Madeleine has a tragic backstory. At the age of just 13, she was led drunk to a bedroom in a vacant flat in London by two American 17-year-olds who raped her. I've decided not to go into too much detail about the rape, except to say that it lasted many hours and involved cigarette burns and a knife that was used before one of the boys, or young men, dangled her over the edge of a stairwell with the intention of killing her. If you want to know more details than that, they're all in her book, which is a wonderfully put together memoir about her life then and now. She writes about other such incidents in her teenage years and how she ended up in a psychiatric ward, The message of the book, however, is one of hope and resilience, as Madeleine has gone on to become a therapist herself and has with time learned to overcome the PTSD, anxiety, and other disorders that resulted from the rape. She now has a beautiful family up in Scotland, and that message of resilience also echoes across her Unbroken podcast in which she interviews other such resilient people. When she says she has learned to forgive her rapists, I don't think she means it literally because she fortunately has never crossed paths with them again. But it is clear that over the decades she's learned to let go and live for herself and her family. Those are my thoughts anyway. I found it a real challenge today from a journalist or podcast presenter point of view because it was such a delicate subject so I find myself tripping over my words a lot. So do bear with me. April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month as well, so I thought this would be a good one to release now. Instead of the usual 10 questions bonus podcast, I wanted to hear about Madeleine's father, who had the most incredible and poignant Holocaust story that I've ever heard. So if you sign up on patreon.com slash andrewgold or download the Patreon app in 20 seconds, you can just listen on there. Those of you who have been listening the last few weeks will know I've done an affiliate sponsorship with another podcast and today is my last chance to tell you about them. It's a podcast that will help you become more successful, wiser and maybe even a better drinks party guest. It's a weekly show called Secret Leaders and I think you'll enjoy it because like on this show they interview outliers except they focus on outliers in business. They interview a diverse range of founders from pioneering startups like BrewDog, Deliveroo, Monzo and Joe Malone who reveal the ridiculous things they've done to get where they are, from landing in this country as a refugee with £10 to firing their mum. Secret leaders have enlightening conversations with fascinating business people so you get to hear the stories that made, broke and remade the most outlandish entrepreneurs of our time. I really like Secret Leaders and you can listen to it wherever you get your podcasts. So, find Madeleine on at madblack65 on Twitter or Instagram. I'm on andrewgold underscore okay on both. You can find the video version of this and all my other podcasts on youtube.com andrewgold1. But for now, here's Madeline. You're a Jewish black. I am. Uh, I know some Jewish blacks. <laughs> Do you? Do you
0: what, from Glasgow, though.
1: Not from Glasgow, but you're not. But you're not from Glasgow.
0: Oh no! But I, I'm married to a Jewish black from Glasgow, and I live in Glasgow. Oh,
1: it's not your. It's not I your was
0: day. a Gedi, so my dad was a Gedalovich.
1: Oh yes, that's right. I think you even mentioned that in the book. No. Okay. Jewish
0: geography time. <laughs> there must be some crossover somewhere.
1: Yeah, I planned like half an hour of like, oh, let's see who we both know. And that's all out. That's out of the question. Well,
0: Daniel Finkelstein. So he obviously, he went to my shul when I used to go, I'm one of five. So I used to go with my mum and dad and there'd be a row of us, a so seven in a row and the Finkelsteins were always there. So that's what I, where oh. I knew him from. And then from Gede as well. I don't think he was, at, I was at Kerim School. I don't think he was at the same school, but definitely Shul and, and Gede. So the boy's done good, hasn't he? <laughs>
1: He's done good and he, his parents yeah. have quite a story and i think as your father does yeah. which i'd like to ask you about later on if that's all right oh sure,
0: yeah
1: so your book was brilliant and beautifully written i've been you know you. i've been reading it every night that's when i read books for this and it's it's, you know very beautiful how has the reaction to it been are, are you happy with it
0: it's been great just at the start of lockdown, it- became an audible book so I had a whole new different type of readers and I think hopefully this summer I'm going to be Italian so sadly it's never going to go out of uh, fashion I don't know if that's the word because you know it's such a global issue violence against women or sexual violence against women as we've just seen this Mm -hmm. week in London you know it's been crazy what's going on
1: Does that bring back uh, memories or fierce uh, opinions? Does your opinion differ to the typical person over what happened uh, last week where there's a a policeman um, murdered uh, a woman?
0: Yeah, it makes me really angry when I read about all the victim blaming. You know, well, she was just walking home and she shouldn't have been walking across Clapham Common at 9.30 at night. We know that warps or clothes or alcohol don't cause uh, rapes or murders. You know, no amount of safety advice is going to make any difference to any woman because it's not our problem. <laughs> the problem lies with the men who perpetrate these crimes, you know, so yeah, that gets me really angry. And we've seen an outpouring of it. So many opinions over on social media. Well, what does she think walking at that time? And then, then you get a hashtag... She was just walking home. So then what if she was a woman who was going to buy drugs? Or what if she was a woman that was wearing a short skirt? Or what if she was a black woman coming home from a club? Would we still feel the same sympathy that we feel for this woman? So, yeah, it evokes a lot of feelings. It really does. And then we see how the police handled the woman at the vigil um, they're there campaigning peacefully, Women and Flowers, about violence against women. And they are met with violence from police. And it was one of theirs who allegedly has murdered her. So, yeah.
1: That's, I mean, it's just the most horrific thing that's happened. And I suppose what's lost in in all of this is, is that a family has lost someone.
0: Absolutely.
1: What have you found is helpful to speak about in other interviews and TED Talks, of course, with regards to what happened that night uh, in in your book. And there are several nights you speak about Because I'm wondering about this, you know, what do you feel comfortable talking about as well? And what do you think is useful?
0: You can ask me anything, really. I I write, Mm. obviously, about every detail and speak about anything. So nothing is off-limits. It's fine.
1: What is your personal opinion then as to how much people should know?
0: Yeah, it's very interesting. You know, when I was writing my book, um, my friend Joe was my editor. I know him from the workshops I went to. And he said, "You are going to put all those details in that you wrote for Imaho, the teacher that I went to for years." And mm-hmm. I said, "No way, Joe. There's no way I, I couldn't let anybody read what they did to me because I was still so ashamed. You know, it was all shame from my trauma." And then he said, "You know, as a man, it, it just really made him think about what can take place. It's not just a a woman being overpowered. He didn't understand the level of violence that could also be part of a a rape attack, a sexual assault." And so he kind of worked on me and worked on me. Then I saw he was right. You know, I'm still, uh, I was still in my shame. I was still wrapped up in the thoughts of what will people think? Will they change their opinion about me? Will they look at me differently? So then I got my contract to publish my book. And my editor, James, said, we don't think we should publish the details. And I said, absolutely, you have to publish the details. I had mm-hmm. I had flipped my opinion completely. I thought... If I'm going to tell my story, then I'm going to tell my story. If I still brush it under the carpet and make it easier for people to digest, then that's not being honest. We need to paint, if I'm able to paint a true picture of what a, a violent rape looks like.
1: And you've been saying that you are. We worried people might think that you are disgusting in some way or something like that. And it's very hard to read because you want to. Keep, you want to sort of reach out through the pages and go, no, 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 that's not true at all. Um, would you like to tell me about that evening and tell the listeners about that that evening?
0: Yeah. So it goes way back to the late nineteen seventies when I was just thirteen and. I guess I did something that everybody does. I I lied to my parents one night. Um, My friend's mum was away. And so we had her empty flat. And we both lied to my parents and her grandparents about where we were staying. And we bought a bottle of vodka. I've never been able to smell or drink vodka again in my life. But we took it to a cafe in North London. It was a Mexican fast food cafe. And we mixed it with orange juice and then we drank it in secret. And, you know, I had never drunk before. I was literally about half the size I am now. And so, yeah, it didn't take me very long to get drunk really quickly. And uh, I threw up all over the place. I was kicked out of this cafe, but two of the young men from the table put us into a taxi. And then we went back to my friend's mum's empty flat. And, you know, it's, it's interesting when we were talking about the Sarah Everard case, because they're saying women can take taxis. And I've really always thought about that taxi driver because he must have seen that I was already getting assaulted. It was already starting in the back of his taxi. But he just really, I guess, wanted to get me there as quickly as possible without me throwing up in the back. But he really was just a bystander instead of an upstander. And I think we need more upstanders in this world to really step in when they see something that's that's off, that's not right. But anyway, he chose to be a bystander and he has to live with that. But when we got to the flats, um, I couldn't walk at this stage. I was literally legless and they bumped me up four flights of concrete steps all the way to the top floor. It was about like four flights up. And then they put us into separate bedrooms, and it just became very obvious quite early on that they weren't there to take me out of the clothes that I'd been sickened. You know, they were there for something else. And then what pursued was about four or five hours of raping me and torturing me every way that they possibly could.
1: And it it really is, there's a point. I guess, uh, two thirds of the way through the book. And you really lay down every fact of the night, which I guess people can can read the book. There's a lot of very uplifting and positive stuff as well, I should say. That chapter's whew, that was a difficult one. And
0: So that chapter, my my publishers decided if we were going to publish the details, they did like a, a survey in the office, should she or shouldn't she publish all the details? Luckily, I had a really Great freelance editor called Jane, and she said, "No, she really needs to publish all the details it's important, so it comes with a warning so if you read that chapter, you can decide whether you go on or not, but I guess all the way leading up to that point, you kind of you know th- there's clues of of what took place
1: and and it wasn't the only uh incident of its kind car- it was it was by far the most traumatic i I suppose, but there were three other Incidents like that, rapes, I, I, they are rapes, aren't they? In, in your teenage years, were they all?
0: Yeah. You know what? It didn't even occur to me until I was writing the book. I had just minimised it and just put them out of my head, which is really what's happening now with every, all the women outpouring with the sexual harassment that they've been through and they start listening and they go, oh, that's just normal. Uh, you know, I just said no and they said yes. And yes, they weren't as violent, but it's not about comparison because all, all rape is a violation on your body, on your mind, and your psyche. And it's, it's not about the levels of, you know, the scale, what was worse and what was better. They were all a violation. But yeah, I didn't even realise until I was writing my book, just had no idea about consent. And I was, you know, I was really scared to fight back. I thought it would get violent like the last time. So I just let them do whatever they wanted. But I I wasn't connected into my body in any way. I had no self-respect, no self-care, no self-worth because of the nature of the initial trauma. So it's a vicious circle really, wasn't it? I ended up becoming very promiscuous, which there's many, many ways that a woman can respond or anyone that's been raped can respond. And I just had no uh, care about my body. It didn't belong to me. I thought that That was all it was good for in some way. But yet it took till I was nearly 50 writing my book for me to go, hang on a minute. These three other times I said no and they said yes and they just carried on regardless. And so many readers get in contact to say, well, I haven't experienced something like the first time, but I've definitely experienced date rapes, how you've described it so many times. And you think, yeah, my story is just the story of many, many people.
1: Do you think it's a matter in some ways of education? Because do you think the, the latter three men realised at the time how horrible what they were doing was? Do they need to be better educated or is it just a lack of empathy?
0: Yeah. I think really if we can start when a child goes to nursery to talk about healthy relationships, respect, consent. So they really understand, you know, right now the British government is talking about putting money into extra CCTV and extra lights to light up parks. So what, we can watch them on CCTV when they're attacking someone. What? What's the point of that? We need to, I think, really educate people from a really, really young age so that they know what is acceptable and what isn't.
1: That's EXPRESSVPN.com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn.com slash heretics to learn more. You had what I would call, in some ways, an optimistic uh, viewpoint of people because you say nobody's born evil. But then I guess there are some psychopaths, aren't there, that no matter how well we educate people, and uh, def- the, the guys um, in your first, when you were 13, they seemed to me like they just might be psychopaths.
0: Yeah, you know, I've obviously thought about them long and hard over the year. And one of them, as you know, you've read it, he stopped the other one from killing me. So I could have easily been another statistic of someone that was raped and then killed. So he, I think, did have a heart. But the other one, the way that I feel about him, you know, I had looked into his eyes. I knew exactly what he was capable of. To me, he just didn't feel like he was a fully evolved human being, if that makes sense. He felt more animal than human Um yeah but I but I still it always I always wondered why why was he like that did he come into the world like this or was he shaped into that way so I guess it's that old nature nurture kind of argument isn't it
1: it's so hard to get into that that person's mind it's and it must have made you and it sounds like it did make you wary for some time of all men and you came to realize i suppose that that not all men what was that like, learning? Because that's when you'd become a therapist later on. And I guess you were helping men who had been molested themselves. So how did that feel for you?
0: Yeah, that, you know, my college used to say to me that we get the clients that we need. That our clients are a gift. And I didn't know what they were talking about, to be honest. And then I got this <laughs> this one guy, a uh, real, I guess if you met him, you know, exterior looked like a real tough guy from Glasgow, but underneath he was a big softy. And about six weeks into the sessions, he disclosed to me that as a 13-year-old boy, he'd been raped on a holiday. Um, he'd gone down a path which his mum told him not to and Trump raped him. And everything that he said it, it, it resonated with me. And I just thought, gosh, you know, he thinks like a woman. Uh, and then I saw that actually, you know, he thinks like a human being. Um, mm. It's just the way he responded. It's almost like, this trauma it's just biology the way that we respond to trauma it's just it takes over it's such a kind of personal crime that it yeah it affects men and women in the same way I saw that and he really did help me to become a lot easier in the therapy room because it left me with many fears, phobias, anxieties. one of them was obviously being around men. And when I went to train as a counselor, then a psychotherapist, I hadn't really worked much with men. I'd worked at Women's Age for 14 years and Rick Crisis for six years. And now I was in a room, just me and a guy. And yeah, my heart used to race in the beginning. And I just thought, what? Well, I'm going to be a crap therapist if I can't sit opposite a guy and work his issues with him all the time. I'm worried about, well, how do I get out if he attacks me? So I kind of did, um, which I didn't really realize I was doing like exposure therapy. I asked the receptionist just to give me male clients so I could learn to face this fear. And that's what I did. I worked solely with men for quite a long time, I think nearly a year, until eventually in the therapy session anyway, I realized that, yeah, they were there for therapy. They weren't there. It was my own fears that were working, doing a number on me.
1: It's a bit of a cliche, I suppose. So so how true is, have you found it to be in real life that therapists are often people who need help themselves?
0: Yeah, well, I think a lot of people think I went into therapy because of my own issue. But actually, it was really my dad. As you know, he was a Holocaust survivor. All of his family, far two of them were wiped out in Auschwitz. They were all murdered. And his sister, my auntie Eva, was chronic schizophrenia, agoraphobia, paranoid, And I could never understand how two people had the same experience but came out so differently. And that, Hmm. as a child, has always fascinated me. If you met my dad, he was teeny. I'm one of the tall ones at five foot two. He was like (laughs) five foot nothing. And um, he just was huge. His name was Leo, which is the lion. And he was like this huge big lion, just big heart, and just loved life. And he mucked about and did practical jokes looking back now I see his laughter really was his strength his ability to come out of the most gruesome situation ever known to mankind and to still love life and to trust people is just amazing so not really by what he said but he showed me how he lived his life that really yeah we can get past anything that happens to us if we choose to
1: we all react in such different ways don't we you went through PTSD. So t- tell me about PTSD for someone. I've, I've never had it. So what, what what does it feel like? And, and dissociation was, was another, another thing.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I didn't even know that that's what was going on. I was doing training to be a volunteer for rape crisis. And they started to list all the things, you know, side effects of PTSD. I went, oh, hang on a minute. I had like nine out of ten. The only thing I couldn't do was self-harm. because I was paranoid about nice because one of them had stabbed me. So... Living with PTSD is like constantly being on guard. So anything would make me jump, anything would make me cry, uh, everything would make me scared, everything would make me paranoid, you know, everything, I had to assess every situation. When it was very bad, I would get lots of flashbacks, lots of nightmares, lots of memories from that night, memories that I had pushed away and locked out for years and years and years. But in the locking down of the memories and the numbing out, it has to come out somehow. So I developed anorexia, I had depression, I used a lot of drugs, alcohol. Uh, Yeah, this was really not in a good place. And this association now, it's still hard because that's where your mind kind of splits off, I guess. It um, protects you. So it takes away those memories and puts them deep down inside. But you feel like, or I felt like, I was just kind of walking through Treacle a lot of the time, like I was there, but I wasn't really there that i you know my sisters and brothers would talk about times I have no memories of them at all around the event or even before the event. My mind did such a good job of shutting down the trauma that it just cut off all these memories so yeah it's a it's a weird thing
1: and yet your 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 memory I remember being impressed by how well you could recall certain things from when you were 13. Was that about piecing it together many, many years later?
0: Yeah, it was really, um, as you know, I, I decided I would never become a mum, but I flipped that decision and I have three gorgeous girls. I can say mm. that because I am their mum. Oh,
1: yeah. By the way, what have you gotten Mimi for her birthday?
0: <laughs> how do you know it's her birthday? <laughs>
1: so it's coming up, isn't it?
0: Yeah, she's going to be 25.
1: Yeah, this is going to come out probably a couple of weeks after that. So you can tell me what you got. It's my birthday. So I, I was quite... Oh, was- <laughs> uh, it's the
0: same day, 21st. Yes. Okay, she wears well, a lockdown birthday, so she doesn't know, but we've ordered a silent disco. So we get the headphones and we get the music and you attach it to your phone and there's (laughs) going to be six of us uh living in the house and we've got a cocktail box coming and some food doesn't know about the silent disco so we're all adding to her playlist for her birthday (laughs) so it's going to be funny
1: unless she's in the other room now listening and then she does know about it
0: upstairs working in her office from home as an architect
1: Oh, lovely! Oh, that's so nice to hear as well because again it's i'm I'm learning about your life through the book where I was learning about it, and it's obviously that was a key moment was was giving birth and i i y- yeah. you didn't want to give birth anywhere that there might be a male doctor at the time. Was that the case just for your for your first birth?
0: Yeah, I was so petrified, the idea of giving birth. I really thought it was going to be like being raped again, you know, being exposed, being out of control, all of my fears paranoid you know all of that was just coming to the surface but I thought if I don't give birth if I don't become a mum I've let them one I'm giving them all my power and control over my own life and they don't even know about it so that was my best revenge becoming a Um, mum yeah so it was great I had a fantastic hospital I went to in London and when I moved to Scotland I had the other two at home in this house that I'm speaking to you from right now just actually above my head so it, it was Brilliant, brilliant home births, much better than hospital. I had two midwives all to myself at home. It was great, great service.
1: That is nice, I suppose. Mm -hmm. There were so many things in the book as well that, that were interesting for me as a man, to read about because I, I had never thought about them. There is so much stuff that men don't think about. And I'm wary of, I, I don't like when men get too sort of worthy because I I, I don't know why this is, but I, I don't trust it. When they're being too much like, oh, women, what should we do? I just think, I don't trust you. That's just my own thing. I think you're doing this too much. But there are definitely things that I had just as a man never thought about. and that One of them is giving birth and having your legs wide. Everything's open. And there are loads of blokes walking in and out the room, and I wouldn't like that as a man. I wouldn't like that just having my legs open and have people to walk it. You know, you just have
0: to let it all go <laughs> when you're giving birth. You know, uh, it's, <laughs> it's uh, yeah. It it for me at the the first birth, I was just too scared, and and I ended up having an all female team, and it was absolutely fine. It hmm. was it was okay. And the same when I had the next two at home, I just had two midwives all to myself. I think when I first moved to Scotland. And I was pregnant with Mimi, my middle one. I had to have the head of midwifery come to my house. This mad Englishwoman wants a home birth. That's not done in Glasgow, but obviously <laughs> it was allowed. And I had another one at home, so uh, it was the best thing for me. Everyone's going to be different, but for me, it was brilliant.
1: What advice would you give to a, a parent now? If because because at the time you, you, nobody knew what you had gone through. They just saw you behaving in a different way and becoming depressed and having all of these conditions. And what struck me, of course, was that nobody seems to ask you, even once you go into a psychiatric ward, was it, or a unit, yep. as a parent and you see your child in that state, what, what should they do?
0: You're right. No one ever, ever asked me any of the right questions. And I asked for my notes when I wrote my book and nothing, nothing in there suggested I had had any trauma. They just put me down as a suicidal teenager with anorexia. That was it. It was shocking to read, actually. I think really, really good just to keep communication open, you know, from a young, young age. Just let your kids know whatever they say to you, nothing can shock you. You'll always be there. You won't judge them. So my girls have always known because I saw that if I wasn't careful, I was going to project all my fears onto my children. And I got paranoid. I didn't want them to be fearful of the world. I want them to be spontaneous, you know, independent, fierce women. and. So I've always said, listen, if you're out, you're doing drugs, you're drinking, whatever, just call us and you're worried. We will come and get you. No questions asked. So they've always known that. And it was actually interesting the very first time that Anna was drunk. She was about 15 and her friends stopped her from calling us. They said, no, no, you you can't call your parents. They'll be really angry. Just call my mum, call my mum. And eventually they did. And I said, it's fine, just tell us where she is. And so after that, they would then call me when they were drunk. (laughs) So we would go and collect them because they were too scared to tell their parents. So, yeah, I just think speak as honestly as you can and and try not to judge. It's easier said than done because it's not an easy job being a parent, you know. Uh, But, yeah, just I think don't ask too many questions. If they want to come and speak to you, they'll speak to you
1: that's hard to do i suppose and it it must have been hard at first you talk about as you as you came to be able to deal with this better you noticed that you were less controlling around the house and so so when you are going through something like this and i suppose that must be quite common when you've gone through a trauma that you want to control every part of the environment that you're in is and so a weight was lifted is that right
0: it was a bit crazy. It's like trying to close the stable door after the horse has already bolted, you know. Yeah. Suddenly I went into this just obsessive, yeah, trying to control everything. But it's it's really, that's just a massive avoidance plan. It's a massive denial and destruct, uh, distraction from what eventually I had to do, was to face all that was done to me. But I spent years just pushing it down, pushing it down, um, putting on this mask, you know, pretending I was all in control a bit like a swan you know it looked great up above I was in control but underneath my feet are padding like crazy just trying to keep up with with the pretense it was like wearing a mask it's exhausting you know pretending to be this person that you're not I was the perfect partner the perfect mum the perfect homemaker but terrified anybody would find out what had happened to me because of the judgments and the fear of people knowing
1: Do we have statistics? I should have looked this up before. Do we have rough statistics about like the uh, amount of women who have had some sort of abuse? Because it does seem like a surprisingly high amount, doesn't it? It just seems like everyone. And I guess the way you were describing yourself, I knew growing up a lot of mothers and a lot of women uh, who were sometimes that way. And And I have since learned that one or two of them went through terrible, terrible things when they were younger as well. Yeah,
0: because it has to come out somehow. You know, if you can't speak about it, it comes out in your behavior. Um, You know, we really need to shift the, the questions that we ask, change the focus from what's wrong with you to what happened to you. Because there's a reason why someone's playing up, you know, a young teenager that seems to have issues it's not because they're bad or they're being whatever there's often something behind it but statistically at the moment they're saying 97 percent of all women have been sexually harassed in some way and this is young women i just think the three percent that took the survey just pressed the wrong button i don't know one woman that hasn't been groped flashed at, cat called wolf whistled you know out running and get your tits out, love, you know, just normal stuff. It's just so normal just to be running, sticking my finger up at people all the time. You know, it's just, Mm. we come to just accept that as a normal thing, but this outpouring at the moment in the UK is showing us actually, yeah, women are now listing it, uh, all the things that they've been through and it it goes on. So they say statistically that one in four women have been sexually assaulted or abused on some level. But that's what's reported. And out of the five men that raped me, I never reported any of them. So can you imagine really what the statistics must be?
1: I'm interested to know whether that means most men are doing these kinds of things, and whether they realize it or not, or that it's even if it's 10% of men and they do it to a lot of different women, it still would mean that 90 to 100% are are being abused or, or molested or assaulted in some way. I don't. I don't know what the. I guess the as the answer is education from a very very young age, regardless of the percentage of men who are doing it.
0: Yep, absolutely. Which means that you almost really know people. You'll know people that have been raped, whether you know it or not, and you'll know people that are harassing women or assaulting women.
1: It's such a strange thing because you just don't know what someone's like, do you?
0: Yep. yep. So the two uh, young men who raped me were both sons of diplomats. It's got nothing to do with class or position or. You know, people just assume it's going to be somebody from a council estate that's going to be a rapist. But they're brothers, they're sisters, they're, they're you know, uncles, they're cousins, they're friends, mm-hmm. they're neighbors. They're not, when we demonize people and we paint them as monsters, it, it's easier for people. But, you know, they're just regular guys.
1: Those two guys, I personally, just from, I, and I, again, I know nothing, but they I feel that like education's not going to do anything. They would just, for whatever reason, whatever might have happened to them or whether they were psychopaths, but then I guess other kinds, uh, yeah, oh, God, I'm just tripping over my words today. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm, okay. so, I'm so worried given the, the, the climate at the moment of saying the wrong thing uh, more than I usually am. And I, I, don't, I don't want to be one of those guys. <laughs> but I know
0: it seems very timely, doesn't it? Because when we uh, talked about doing this, none of this was going on at the time. So, yeah, it seems very timely that we're doing this right now.
1: There does seem to be sort of something like Me Too happens and what's happening at the moment. And it, it does seem to die down quite quickly. I mean, last time it did anyway. And then we sort of moved on to other social social things. Do you think more has to be done?
0: I think Me Too, it wasn't a moment. It is still a movement. I think there's still a lot of work going around with Me Too. And it it mm. helped to expose so much. I mean... Harvey Weinstein, it's now a year that he's been in prison. So I don't think that would have happened if Rose McGowan hadn't spoken out, if she hadn't said, you know, this has happened. And then it triggered 100 actresses, mm-hmm. at least, to come forward to speak about their experiences being blocked from working in studios, being blacklisted from working in films, you know, because they wouldn't repay him in the way that he wanted to be paid. Um, that wouldn't have happened without Hashtag queue, without a doubt. And it, it really, did encourage other people to speak up and find their voice because there is, I guess, strength in numbers, isn't there? Yeah. Not a club really that we want people to be part of, but sadly, it is a it is a big club. It's a worldwide yeah. club.
1: What message would you give to your 13 year old self now?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. I think I would just go back and tell her it was never her fault. I mean, I, I don't like to have regrets because I can't change the past. I've had to accept what happened took place. Um, But yeah, just would tell her to lighten up. (laughs) You know, it wasn't her fault. Whatever she was wearing, drinking, lied about, that that didn't cause rape. At the end of the day, 100% of all rapes are caused by rapists and nothing else. Nothing else.
1: Are you able to get into the minds of your your attackers? It's not something
0: (laughs) you want to do uh, to get into their mind, but... um, I chose a long time ago to just let go of it all because I you know, before I went down the path of forgiveness, I guess I was just filled with so much hate and revenge and plotted fantasies in my head against them. I was so bitter, sarcastic, I was just so rude to most men actually. And uh so I can't continue to do this. They're still manipulating my life. They don't even know I'm angry and it's it's still impacting me. So When you wake up to something and you see it, you can't unsee it. And I thought I have to really stop denying it and accept what had happened because that's what it was. It was just the refusal to believe that this had taken place as if somehow it was a reflection of me, which it it never was. It was a crime committed against my body.
1: And so when you say you've forgiven them, do you really feel that? I mean, because you you didn't get the opportunity to see them again. I I imagine you wouldn't want to.
0: You know what? It was never really for them. When I think of the word forgiving, it's for giving me a better chance. It was about having some understanding and some compassion, which I never thought I'd ever have for either of them. But it was, I didn't need them to meet with them. I didn't need them to write me a letter or to, you know, tell me they were sorry. It was a decision I could make in my own heart about how I wanted to live out the rest of my life. And I didn't want it to be one tinged with bitterness and hatred and revenge. So it was an act of self-love, I guess, and it was just totally self-empowering. And it just cut those chains that really linked linked me to them and linked me to the past. And it, yeah, it allowed me just to go, OK, I'm not what happened to me. I don't believe I am. I'm more than that event in my life. And I know that... Um, the real essence of who I am is, I've taken a shitload of therapy to uncover it, but they can never, ever touch that. You know, the real essence of who we are, who we're all born with, that can never be damaged by whatever is done to us. So yeah, it was about letting it go.
1: Do you have any idea about their sort of whereabouts or anything like that? Yeah,
0: they were sons of diplomats. so I imagine they were just living in London for a couple of years. So I assume that they're back in America, but no, I have no idea where they are i have no interest to be in contact with them either i don't wish them any ill harm but i don't really want to be their friends in any way
1: your friend was with you and you woke up alongside her and she was fully clothed and you were not Mm -hmm. several years later your parents called hers and she denied that that any of this had happened what did it feel like to hear that and and how could she deny it, having woken up next to you and you were bruised and, you know, with, with evidence everywhere?
0: Uh, you know, it's uh, that is a question I've asked myself for years and years and I'll never know the answer. I'll never know. Because, and it's interesting with social media, none of my school friends have ever found her. So I don't oh. know where she is, but... um I just think either the same thing happened to her and she blanked it out or nothing happened to her and she couldn't understand it. But I think she was also scared of getting into trouble like I was because we had poor alcohol and she had lied. We both lied about where we were staying. So yeah, I'll, I'll never really know the answer to that question, but I felt just so betrayed and let down by her. She said that they were nice boys, you know, they just brought us home. They wouldn't do what I had said they had done, but yeah. They did.
1: Mm. That sounds like she's covering her tracks.
0: Yes, it's it's interesting. I get some people that send me theories, their own theories, and and they think, well, maybe she set this up and she knew these guys and this was done on – and I I don't think that was right. I've never ever thought that was right. But a few people have said people love to give you their opinions, don't they? But I, I, I don't believe that's true. I think it was really just wrong place, wrong time, and two opportunities just took advantage of the situation.
1: Hmm. I just got shivers down my spine when you said that theory.
0: It's yeah.
1: horrible. But she was at school with you, and yeah. she just knew these, these boys, these older 17-year-old men.
0: Yeah, yeah. She Her father was American, and she kind of was English, but when she was with them, she suddenly became very American, so her accent changed. And she was a lot more, I guess, mature than me. I was the middle one of five. I didn't wear makeup or snazzy clothes, and she was really you know, she had the far flosset fits in her hair from Charlie Angels mm. and wore the best clothes and makeup and this kind of girl that everybody wanted to be, you know, yeah. the cool one in the class. So, uh yeah.
1: Probably very unhappy though.
0: I don't know. I'll, I'll mm. never know what was behind it all. Um, I felt very betrayed by her and I, my dad still wanted to go to the police despite what she was saying, but I was still terrified because they had threatened Hmm. me that if I speak that they will find me and they will kill me. So I begged him not to, but my mum was really quiet and that took me years to understand my mum's silence. But in that time, I thought, well, my friends betrayed me and my mum doesn't believe me. So it it was a pretty tough time in my life. It was pretty
1: dark. And how is it for your children and your husband um, talking about this, reliving it with you and, and going through the book and interviews and stuff like that?
0: yeah they're they're okay my youngest one goes oh mom i could tell your story i've heard it so many times <laughs> so she's they're, like, they're quite blase so it was interesting when i was writing the book before it was published I said you know you could read the manuscript if you want so anna read her chapter all about her mimi read the very end when it's really great everything's okay and leila who then wasn't even 13 she read the whole of the book so it's uh interesting what they did but they've, they've seen me speak a few times uh and they're fine um When I spoke at Glasgow TEDx, that was in front of 2,000 people, which I'd never spoken to quite so many before, and I was so scared to speak to so many people. But actually, you can't see that many people, which I've discovered. You only get a chunk. So I thought, I'll focus in on my family, and I'll I'll look at them. And my husband had heard me many times on the radio, TV, whatever, and live, and he just had these massive tears falling out of his eyes. I thought, oh, I can't look at him. I'm just going to start crying. And I just said, what? why? Why are we so emotional this time and he said it's just the journey you know from not ever being able to speak about it and then now you there you are standing on a stage telling 2000 people and he said just yeah it's just uh, he's obviously witnessed me change over the years in, in many ways
1: it must have been very hard for him as well in, in a very different way of course in the early days loving you so much and seeing you in so much pain
0: yeah, I think it's hard for people that have to care for people that have the trauma, how, how best to help people, how, you know, when I am fighting him off, when we're being intimate, because his face is morphed into theirs, you know, I can't imagine how that must be for a guy, but he's just, it's very grounded, very supportive, whatever therapy, whether he thought they were wacky or not, whatever I wanted to do, he just said, yep, if it helps, go do it. And I have literally tried most therapies that are available to people i've I've tried a lot of them and yeah he was always very supportive and still is
1: hypnotherapy um seemed to work a bit and i'm fascinated by hypnotherapy because i had a hypnotherapist on the show one time um, and there, are you know it, it almost feels the way he explained it like it's a shop where you can go to and be like wait I don't want to have this obsessiveness anymore and I don't want to do that is it a bit like that can you just go and they help you what what happens
0: yeah so I, I went because I was terrified of giving birth and I thought I was determined to, to get through that and she just really removed the fears she didn't really remove the trauma so later on the trauma came back but when it came back I thought I was very suspicious and I thought maybe the hypnotherapy has planted some fake memories in my head or maybe all the years I've worked with women I've you know digested their stories but it it wasn't obviously so it really helped me to ground myself and to focus on on my breath and just to really be present as much as I could when I was giving birth and the things that I was scared of I was terrified of needles I had a real needle phobia but I think it's just being held down and sharp things being put into my body because of some of the things that they did to me. I guess it just took me back to that place. So a, a trigger is very weird because it's not just an emotion that you feel it very physically. So the idea yeah. of something that... that went back to felt like something that was done all those years ago could bring up all these physical sensations which was normally to run so somebody tried to inject me I was normally running so then they had to hold on to me and pin me down which just traumatized me even more so uh, but I got past it obviously I now can hold up my arm and have a an injection or a blood test no problem.
1: That's the part that somebody who hasn't gone through anything like this so someone like myself find really interesting to hear about and very hard to if not hard to empathize because I can I can understand how that must be but hard to imagine because I can't imagine feeling a physical sensation is that how it is you really feel like a, a sharp pain yeah yeah
0: you know like when I lived in London I now live in Scotland I couldn't even drive past a block of flats where it happened and if by mistake I was in the passenger seat and somebody took that journey past the block of flats I've been sick in the car. I've, you know, I've felt dizzy. I can feel my heart beating faster. It just brings back all the stuff that you're trying to push down. So it's like this constant battle inside. It's this constant push pull all the time. I remember hearing somebody at a trauma conference where I had spoken. It was about four years ago, and she said that the the fear or the pressure of keeping our secrets in is like constantly holding a beach ball under the water. And and that just really spoke to me, that constant pressure of like, I hope they don't find out. I hope I can just act normal. I hope, I, you know, they can't see me breathing too fast or feeling dizzy or looking like I'm going to throw up. Uh, just that fear of being found out, you know, that I've got this dark, shameful secret inside of me.
1: There was a moment where um, you were at a, I'm going to call it a ritual, and, and a woman came over and asked you to stop crying and get out or something is a horrible person
0: well it just comes from a place of lack of understanding I've since spoken to her and checked I just had really bad mental health (laughs) which I guess maybe at the time I did but yeah that that is uh, (laughs) that's even worse I know but that there's a whole part of my story that I don't really write about and the crying is like yeah, it, something opened up in me, and the tears that I used to have after the end of these workshops, uh, they weren't really my tears. So somehow, I was able to tap into just all the pain that women feel, and I would see and feel many stories from many women who didn't survive. So they were women that had passed, and so the tears that came were never really my tears. It kind of takes your interview in a whole <laughs> angle if we go down to that, but yeah, I don't really write about that in the book, but she she was very disturbed with my tears and uh, people do, they don't know what to do when they hear someone crying. They either mm. people wanted to fix me. I did it for about 8 years, you know, at the end of this workshop, there'd be a particular song came on by Enya. I would cry and cry and cry for about 20 minutes and when it left me, I was fine. I didn't even need to blow my nose. My eyes weren't red. It just something that came through me and and went out the other side. People wanted to Fix me and people yeah. wanted to protect me, mother me. She just thought I was a loony and wanted me out in the room because I was disturbing her. But it's interesting what peers bring up in other people. So, what I learned over the time when they used to come to me, it's what they couldn't stay comfortable with within themselves. You know, whatever okay. it was touching in them, they just couldn't go near. So, they would come to me instead, if that makes sense.
1: I can understand wanting to sort of help you and, and, you know, but to, to go and say just can you can you get out your your tears are actually quite um distracting. That's um feels like a lack of empathy, but yeah, we don't know what, what she is going through, as you say.
0: Absolutely.
1: There's one question that I don't think I would have asked, but 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 you you do say this in the book, um, which is that you wouldn't go back and, and make it not have happened. I, I've been very surprised making this podcast with how many people say a similar kind of thing. There's a woman who was blind, for example. She's the BBC's first blind presenter and talks about mm-hmm. how difficult that was going blind. And then she says, no, but I wouldn't change it now. And then there are people who have been in, in religious sects and things like that. And, and and you said that as as well. And and how much, I guess that's because your identity is so different to what it would have been. Is that is that fair to say?
0: Yeah, you know, it just opened me up for so many things. I know that you've obviously read, so you know, about the monk. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if I ever would have been exposed to these, I don't know what you call them, different dimensions. I'm still trying to work out what happened there. Um, it, yes, it's a paradox, really, because, yes, it's really influenced my life, what has happened to me. But then I'm not what happened to me as well. But it has... It has put me on the most insane journey. I mean, I've met Sir Kevin Mcdonald. he's interviewed me, Jeremy Vine. you know, just all of these things mm. that are being interviewed by Andrew Gold, you know all of these <laughs> things that have happened, yeah. it would never have happened, and I feel somehow like this is almost my purpose. If I can speak out, then it's my duty and and I'm really, really okay now. It really doesn't impact on my life in any way. If anything, I think I have post traumatic growth, I think you can grow through what you go through you know it's really Mm. made me more determined stronger it's shown me that yeah that we are resilient as human beings we and, and i'm not superhuman we all have that inside of us you know we can all choose how we respond to whatever happens to us yes we have to work it for a long time it's taken me a long long time to get to this place it's not the sprint by any means is definitely a marathon, but it's really possible to heal from anything and and have a great life. And I guess that's what I want people to show. And I think what would have happened to me if this didn't happen? Would I still just be um middle class Jewish housewife living in North London, completely shut off and asleep? You know, it kind of, I guess it shot an arrow into my heart and, and woke me up. It really yeah. did.
1: You've just insulted 20% of the listener base.
0: <laughs> Sorry. I'm um, Jewish as well so it's okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: No, I'm joking. I I don't know. I don't know what the percentage would be actually. But uh, <laughs> Okay. No, I, I totally get that as well. I totally get that. And and what, actually, what was Trevor MacDonald like? He, for anyone who doesn't know, for Americans and stuff, he's probably one of our most famous news anchors ever, isn't he?
0: Yeah, he's a legend, really, isn't he? He's a British journalist and broadcasting legend. Uh, yeah, he was brilliant. He was just so charming. You know, when I got to the BBC studios, um, we got to the, the sound studio when he was in recording the interview and someone said, Oh, who's interviewing who? They thought maybe I was interviewing him. He said, No, I have the pleasure of interviewing Madeline. And he was kind of faffing around to start with, looking at all his papers. And when he started, he was just like Madeline Black, and he was like, oh, boy, he was caught by his his presence. But he he just had time for everyone. You know, we walked down the corridor, hi Sir, Trev, Sir Trev, and he, hi, how are you? How's the family? He just had time for everything. he's just as gentlemanly and lovely as you would imagine him to be. I wanted to yeah. take him home back to Scotland but it was all <laughs> He is extremely
1: charming isn't he Rachel? yeah, he really was. Oh, what an experience. And so and, and another thing you've been able to do in, in in recent years is to start this podcast. Um so yeah. why do not you tell us a bit about your podcast and how and whether that's helped you as well and, and the types of people you talk to?
0: Yeah, it's called Unbroken the podcast with Madeleine Black and it I guess it was my gift of lockdown because I stopped working as a psychotherapist a couple of years ago, and then I was at the peak of my career. It was fantastic. I had just come back from Namibia in um, February 20. I was the keynote speaker there, which uh, the closing keynote, which is like, you know, the best thing is to be the opener or the closer. And I've never been a closer, so it was like, yay. And then I came back, COVID happened, and cleared out my diary, emptied it. I like to say pause, not cancelled, all of my engagements. I thought, what am I going to do? And after realising this is not going to get better, and now it's actually almost a year till the day that we had the start of lockdown, I just thought, you know, I know tons of amazing people because I shared my story with the Forgiveness Project and Marina collects stories of forgiveness. So there's about 250 people there. And I'm also... uh, participant in the global resilience project where Emma Bell looks at people that have thrived after adversity and she wanted to kind of find our blueprint to see what it is that we all do and they're all different stories so already I know 50 people there and I just thought everybody's facing on all the doom and gloom and the fear there was so much fear people were watching the news 24 hours a day watching the numbers rise and I thought I can't do this I need to bring some positivity, uh, inspire people, motivate people. But yeah, I wanted to bring hope. So I just interview people, I guess, a little bit like me that have been through some tough times, but have bounced forward in life, not just back and they're making a difference. So it's a total win-win because I get to sit in their fantastic energy and it inspires me. But then I share their stories and I know it, it makes a difference to people that have listened. You know, so many people have told me that, you know, listening to that woman made me realise that still stuff I need to clean up from my childhood, I've now gone back to therapy or someone, a mum got in contact, I would interviewed Colin Jackson about his own eating disorders when he was an elite athlete and she said, I realised my son is anorexic after listening to Colin and I've now taken him somewhere and he's getting help and he's admitted it. So, you know, it's just, it just helps to heal. So it is kind of healing through storytelling because I love I love stories. I think telling stories, we've done it for years and years and years, hundreds of years. And, yeah, I really believe in the power of sharing stories. I think if somebody hears one at the right time in their life, it can transform for that person, show them the way, you know, light up their map in their healing. So that's really why I do it. And it's, it's been brilliant. It's only been since November and it's now... I think, 55 countries and in the top 2% of all podcasts globally. So it mm. more than exceeded any expectations I had. So, uh, yeah, it's been great.
1: It's very funny, I mean, how similar... Uh, that that sounds to my own podcast because it was the same thing of like things seem to be going well in another career and then suddenly lockdown. They must have, there must be like 10 times more podcasts. I haven't seen the statistics. Yeah. There must be so many yeah. more because of lockdown. And obviously your podcast is filled with episodes just, you know, very inspirational people. And I say that because I'm coming on it at some point as well, you know. So. <laughs> yeah, the most inspirational of, of all of them. No, but but it's, and it, the other thing is, I mean, it's obviously doing very well your podcast compared to most podcasts as you say it's in the top two percent it's very hard to know and it can be quite frustrating it's very nobody publishes their podcast analytics Um, so you know if somebody asks you to go on theirs or whatever sometimes you might want to go oh I wonder what the audience is and that kind of thing and you can't see them anywhere all you can do is go to um, Apple's uh, reviews and see in your country how many reviews that podcast has or whatever and sometimes I've had people emailing like, come on my podcast. I get a million listens or whatever, and they've had like one review ever or one rating. And I'm like, you are making up your numbers, but <laughs> yours has quite a lot of uh, reviews and stuff. So it's obviously doing really, yeah, really it, well.
0: It's, it's been great. I think you have to really be consistent, and you have to, you know, it's called social media for a reason. You have to be social, so you have to post about it. So one episode, I post over four days. You know, there's the, me talking about the trailer. There's some clips from the the actual show there's on the day key points from the episode and then there's quotes the following day after it's been published so I've kind of got into a rhythm now of what I do but then you've got a well, I choose to, you know, post on all social medias, on all stories. So it's pretty time consuming, but I'm quite clever. I have a producer, so I just do the talking and the posting and he does all of the technology. So that was ah. my way around it. <laughs> Who's
1: that, that lucky or unlucky person? Yeah,
0: I have an amazing guy called Neil Long, who is on The Breakfast Show in Radio Jackie in South West London. So he's ah. worked for radio for 20 years. So he's got all the gadgets, all the machines. I thought don't really want to do the technology that's really what held me back and then i was on someone else's show an amazing woman called anna anderson and she said oh i have a producer i'm going to hang on to that idea and keep that for when i'm ready and he's brilliant neil he's great
1: the interviewing is nice isn't it and you get to speak to different people every week you get to read their books and watch their things and it's such a nice life to to be able to do that um and then it's like, ah, oh, I've got to edit this whole thing. Not man. me. Yeah. <laughs> Just you. Yeah. yeah, but you've got to look after children and stuff. So,
0: um, oh, no, the baby's nineteen and she's at uni having a ball. So yes, yeah, oh. not they're not <laughs> not too difficult. They're pretty self-sufficient now.
1: It was so great speaking to Madeleine, and what a harrowing story she has. But also it's a relief that she's been able to put such a positive spin on things and to turn her life around. My blood boils when I think of the two men who raped her when she was 13. As a lot of you know, on this show, I'm all about giving people a chance and getting into their minds and being understanding. And Madeleine does this too in her book, Unbroken, in which she considers what awful childhoods they must have had to do what they did. And to me, that's what Madeleine means when she says she's forgiven them, that she's tried to understand them. But in my mind, they don't deserve her forgiveness, and it's a travesty. They didn't have to pay for what they did. Anyway, Madeleine tells a remarkable story about her father in the Patreon bonus interview. I usually ask 10 questions from inside the actor's studio, but this story was too good to not hear. I wanted you guys to be able to listen to that. So download the app, Patreon app. It takes 20 seconds, and then sign up to my Patreon page to listen to it, along with my other bonus interviews. I'll get in touch to help if you're having trouble, but you can also listen in your podcast apps once you sign up. Here's a snippet from today's bonus interview.
0: They bribed a guard and then they with some jewellery that my grandmother must have kept. And then they went back to their home and they kind of hid in secret so they would cook at night so that people wouldn't see the lights on. But then I think one of the neighbours ratted them and Oof. the Hungarian police then came. So my dad, as he was vertically challenged, he was pushed into a cupboard under the sink but at that point my dad's family were then taken to Auschwitz which is where they all met their death. His youngest brother was only six years old so he was gassed as well.
1: It's an amazing story and we talked for another uh, 10-15 minutes there so do get the Patreon app or go to patreon.com slash andrewgold to hear the rest. Thank you to my sponsor, Babbel. As a reminder, don't forget to use Edge promo code for six months free with the purchase of a six-month subscription. Thank you to my new patron this week, Tom Mason, who I had a back-and-forth chat with for a bit, and he seems like a really lovely guy. And everyone else, please keep reviewing the show on CastBox or Apple, whatever you can. I had a couple of great ones this week. Somebody called What Bloody Nickname Isn't Taken in the UK wrote, I'm becoming evangelical. I'm loving these podcasts and keep pushing my friends to listen so that we can discuss them. Wonderful variety of thought-provoking guests. Re length, I'd like them a bit longer, if anything, and perhaps a little more challenge from you on some points. But thank you, you're doing a brilliant job. I really appreciate this series. Well, you're not the first person to say I should challenge a bit more, and I, I think I push, um, I push next week's. I'll talk about her in a minute, but I push next week's um, guest a little bit further, probably because of that. You're all getting into my head, but no, thank you so much for a lovely review. Uh, another review came from Jazz Cinnamon in Canada who wrote, best podcast so far. I'm a prolific consumer of podcasts and this one truly hits on all levels. It's dynamic, thought-provoking and edgy. Well, edgy is definitely what I'm going for. So thank you so much, Jazz Cinnamon. That was also very nice to, to read. Please, everybody, keep reviewing and telling friends about it so it can grow. Next week is my 50th episode. It's all happened so fast, hasn't it? It feels like just yesterday I was setting it up for the first time. That was, that was May 29th the first episode came out. That was with Nate Phelps, the son of the Westboro Baptist founder, Westboro Baptist Church. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's been nearly a year and 50 episodes in that time. Incredible. Uh, and I couldn't have done it without you guys. So thank you so much. You've been there with me from the beginning. I plan to go on indefinitely. and I'm not just talking about the podcast. I mean, if you've heard the episodes I've done about immortality, I think you know I I really do. When I say I plan to go on indefinitely, I really mean it. But I love that you guys were here from the start. And to mark the special occasion, I've got a blast from the past in the form of female Mormon psychopath, M.E. Thomas. She's back on the show. And things get quite heated, actually. But we also have a lot of fun. So stick around for that one.
0: 18 plus.